welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Well, one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk with you is because uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about the role of sex as central to what we would maybe call mental health. So thinking about how sex is like a really core part of a healthy human. And I think our culture doesn't always really honor and celebrate its very central role in our well-being. And I think we also are particularly fidgety about how to help kids grow into their sense of sexuality and their sort of identity as sexual beings. Uh, I think a lot of us as parents get a little bit fidgety about it. Um, But I know that you've been thinking a lot about that subject. So thought you'd be the perfect person to talk to. Yes, true. Yeah. And uh, I know you work with entrepreneurs and many of them have young kids and families and they're just, you know, really thinking about how to do things differently than their parents did. And they want to be a better parent, more open parent. And, you know, you teach your kids how to have some manners, you bring them to school, you take them to ballet, but you know, all of a sudden it's like ostrich syndrome when it comes to talking about sex Certainly like a mother talking to their son or a father talking to their daughter. It's like this taboo situation. And so your kids end up learning everything about sex from pornography or from their friends. And it's complete garbage information. And there's no counter-programming. I set out in my book, No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence, and Healthy Relationships to change that narrative, one, through you know, giving parents the courage and the language to talk to their kids about sex, but also to kind of face head on their own fears and what they internalized from their childhood, which was, which is holding them back. So that's what I'm all about. The shameless psychiatrist, no shame around talking about sex. No shame. I love it (laughs) because I mean, shame is so built into our conversations around sex. Like shame is this force that controls our behavior from the outside in. And I think a lot of, I I really love your work because it, it names that directly. And because it starts with the sort of shame that might live inside of a parent that may be inadvertently like running the conversation that parents have with their kids. So I guess I want to, I want to maybe start by um, asking you about shame in the way that it shows up in the parents that you work with or the parents that you speak to? Sure. Well, everyone experiences shame. And when we feel shame, when we violate the social norms we believe in, and in some ways that emotion is helpful in that it keeps society a little more cohesive, but um, it can be a, a, a very negative things in in many points of our lives. So we feel shame when we put on a bathing suit and we think we're fat or we feel we're too tall or short. And it's not even necessary for a disapproving person to be present. We need only to imagine another's judgment. And this, this even becomes internalized. And it's a personal narrative that becomes internalized. 
So, and to unpack shame, we have to examine the societal norms that we've internalized and decide whether or not those norms represent our own values and then practice self-forgiveness and learn to be our authentic self and rid ourselves from shame if we do do a go against societal norms. So, for example, a lot of parents use pet names for uh, the parts of the anatomy like pee-pee or wee-wee or you know, poo-poo or instead of using like vulva and penis and anus because they feel like a shame around those names. Well, you know, societal norms say like, oh, you're not supposed to say those things out loud. They're somehow shameful. We've been taught to believe that. But if you unpack it and and examine that societal norm, you'd say, wait a second, that's just biology. That's just naming a body part. Why is it any different than naming a finger or naming, you know, a you're a femur. Why all of a sudden we do not say anus? Why is that bad? And that's where you have to really look at societal norms and say, no, that doesn't make sense. And actually it can be detrimental because naming body parts can prevent sexual abuse. A study of 91 sex offenders of children said they would avoid children who knew the correct names of their body parts because they're probably the same children who know that it's wrong to be touched inappropriately because their parents have educated them. Why does shame around our own bodies as adults, why do you think that's such a powerful force? I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of shame to be had in the world. Like, there's lots of powerful forces that are telling us what to do, how to think, how to feel. But I feel like shame around body and sex is, I don't know, it feels really primary to me. Like it feels like top three shames. Yeah. Well, women are more likely to experience the negative effects of shame. Because they've been, you know, programmed to say that saying no and, you know, and, you know, saying no or saying, you know, or setting boundaries is, is a very bad thing and we have to give in to everyone and we, we practice this care-based, it's called care-based um, morality and men have more justice-based morality. There's like all these layers, but just around the body, you know, our body we have, you know, been internalized to feel shame around our bodies from very early on because of images we see and, you know, the TV and ads that we're, you know, exposed to. And that's changing a little bit. I see a lot more body positive ads now than I did when I was younger. And so we've been internalizing all these cultural messages from such a young age that now, you know, we think that even our cellulite is bad, you know, everything is bad. And, you know, the only good way to be is to be a young, beautiful person, like even growing old is shameful. And there is no, there is no value in being an older person. Like, you know, they're kind of discarded in our society. I mean, there's so many reasons why we experience shame. I think that, you know, my point of view is, okay, let's reverse that narrative and, you know, teach children to do better than we did by actually addressing those subliminal cultural messages head on. By, you know, hey, let's look at your kid's Instagram account and say, hey, let's follow some more body positive follower, you know, um, influencers rather than just all these skinny ones. And let's follow more, you know, women are really into, you know, you know, really into their big, beautiful body and, you know, what that experience is like for them and how they're so proud of themselves despite their differences in, in looking in the way they look. And and that helps just sort of counter-program these younger girls, because right now there's a huge mental health crisis with girls. It's actually getting worse and not better because of the influences of social media. And so we need to help counter-program and just unpack that. And that we can do that by just, you know, 
finding better role models in our lives, both for ourselves and for our children. I think one of the complicated setups around sex in particular, and I think this plays a little bit differently for identifying boys and identifying girls, but um, is is both shame around no, like you're not supposed to say no because your role as a sexual being is to be pleasing and accommodating to a male partner who desires you. That's sort of one point of shame. Like if you say no, you're bad. But also if you say yes, you're bad. If you're somebody who's like, I really enjoy sex or I want I want sex in this way or I want to try that. That is like a, another sort of scary cultural breaking that um, I think a lot of parents are like, okay, I want to raise my kids to be sex positive, right? To feel comfortable on their bodies and to be able to say yes and no when they want to. But I think they the saying yes is maybe even harder than the saying no, right? Helping empower kids to say yes and to be clear about what they want. Yes. I mean, explicit yes. Like teaching them to want, to get, to want, and to to really have an explicit yes and not just, well, uh, not a no. First of all, that's something you need to say to boys, right? Boys, if a girl's not saying, yes, I want this, then it's, it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be like they're not saying no or they're not pushing your hand away, but they should just want that. And, you know, you should say, hey, do you want this? Does this feel good? Is this a big fat yes? You know, and that's very, very exciting for a boy and a girl. And giving children the permission to set boundaries and the language to do so is really important. And it doesn't start in adolescence. You haven't got to train this from early childhood. So um, you really have to teach your kids to say no and yes to different kinds of touching. So it's very important. Like with my girls, like I ask them, may I brush your hair or, you know, you know, may I give you a back rub? I just don't go in and do it because I'm, I'm teaching them already like, that physical touch is something they have control over. And if they don't have control over it, like it's a doctor or whatever, and I have to force them to do it, or they're young and I have to wash them, you know, I really make sure that I say, listen, I have to touch you now. And this is the reason why. So that way they know, you know, they kind of know what's going on. And then when they get older, you know, I'll say, can may I have a hug? And that's like setting, that's like setting up the Hey, let's let's have control over who touches my body. And I don't really like it when when a great aunt or someone comes up to me and grabs them. I'm, I'm always like, wait, you know, you can, you don't have to hug auntie. You can just give her a fist bump, you know, if you want to. So I'm already giving them that body autonomy with my girls. And then, you know, I hate being tickled so much. I think it is the most horrible experience. And I just don't think you should tickle kids unless they really like like it, you know, <laughs> unless they. Are- consent yeah, specifically. It feels horrible for me and, you know, out of control and painful. So, you know, be careful of the tickling thing. Um, but I also think you then you go up to sexual consent and it's like, what's it like to be out on a date and feel trapped? And it's like, that's why I really like the idea of teaching your adolescents to like, hey, this is going to be a waste up date. Like, I want you to know up front, if we go out, this is the rules. These are the boundaries. And it's like saying that up front often can be so relieving because even the man might feel like, oh, I have to try more because that's what men do. If you just take it all off the table from the start, the date can take on a totally different, you know, tone and it can be a lot more fun. So that's what I mean by expressing boundaries. And, you know, if you get that, yes, it's like you really mean it. It's very exciting. What are some of the strategies that parents can utilize to help their kids 
learn to say those clear yeses and there's clear no's? I really like the idea of actually practicing the language with your girls and boys. Like, what do you do if, uh, if uh, you're on a date and a, and a guy says, if you really love me, you would have sex with me, right? You know, what would be the action? Yeah, let's, let's talk that through. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, what would you say? You know, just actually go through the language. So, you know, for, for that, I'll say, well, if you really loved me, you wouldn't ask me to do that because that makes me uncomfortable. Or, you know, oh, hey, if you don't touch my penis, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go home with blue balls. You know, it's like the, all, that's all the stuff I heard <laughs> as a teenager. And I always say like, well, no, you, we, I know very well you can take care of that problem yourself, you know? So it's all these like things that you can like rehearse with your kids. That way, like there's nothing they kind of haven't heard before. And it's, it, I think that's a great way to like teach girls how to set boundaries or, you know, teach boys how to set, set boundaries with maybe, you know, a lot of girls will say, well, you need to call me at this time and, you know, I need you to be, you know, oh, you didn't call me. And, you know, it, it's, it, boys get into this situation where they feel like their boundaries in terms of their time are being manipulated. And so they have to give up their friends and give up, you know, other relationships to make the, to make their sexual relationship work when they're teenagers. And that's very stressful for boys. So learning how to like help them set boundaries with whoever they're with is also very important. So it's really like role modeling and, and conversation. I guess you must do that as well in, in business entrepreneurial stuff, don't you? You probably have these coaching sessions around how to speak to clients. And it's kind of like that for kids. Like how do you coach them to be able to set boundaries? And um, also role model great boundary setting as well. So if you're the kind of person that has a hard time setting boundaries in your own relationships, you really need to get therapy and learn how to do so. because. They learn mostly by watching you, like that commercial. Yeah. <laughs> when you're a kid, I learned by watching you, Dad. <laughs> what, you spoke a little bit about kind of the mental health crisis among adolescent girls in particular. And I wonder if you could even say more specifically how you feel like confusion around sexuality or body fits into that crisis. Well, yeah. I mean, the mental health crisis of girls is like very low self-esteem. Uh, right now, there are a lot of girls who are suffering from very poor self-esteem. I think COVID had a lot to do with that because they got... So teenage girls are hardwired to be... I mean, this is like, you know, the difference between boys and girls' brains in adolescence. In, in teenage girls' brains light up like a dopamine Christmas tree on MRIs because of social interaction. Like, that's how they get fired up. Boys' brains get fired up in different ways. They like like competitive stuff. They like gaming. Like they like, you know, anything that has to do with risk, like, you know, motocross or, you know, they like that kind of stuff. Their brains light up from that. But girls light up like a Christmas tree from social interaction, you know, feeling a sense of connection to their friends. It is really the main job of an adolescent girl is to learn how to make social connections. And that is very evolutionary, very biological. Boys too, I'm not saying there is, you know, complete difference. I'm just saying girls a little favorable in that domain. And so when COVID happened and they were just stuck home with their with their parents and their only social interaction was online or, you know, the only way they could get any dopamine was through those 
venues, they ended up just take like spending so much time on social media that all they were doing is looking at these images of people with their perfect lives and their perfect bodies and the perfect lighting and all of the things that you do to make social media, you know, all our pictures look great. And so they thought that's what everyone had and they don't have. So they found that they were in a scarcity mindset, right? Instead of a gratitude mindset, I don't have enough. I'm not good enough. I don't look like this. So they internalized all of this horrible stuff in the scarcity mindset. And the only way they could get their dopamine needs met was through this horrific kind of artificial social interactions. And so it really just, it just, it just crushed them and they got depressed and they made a mental health crisis and pulling, you know, I don't know if it was good or bad in the end of the COVID, but pulling them out of school was just disastrous. And so, you know, now I'm dealing with all my practice, all the repercussions of all those things, that perfect storm for girls, especially they'd suffered way more than boys. And now we're trying to undo all that damage that we did during the pandemic for these young girls. And, you know, the message I have for parents is like, do whatever you can to keep your kids off social media. It is toxic. The studies are coming out. They're unequivocally showing us how bad social media is for teenage girls. They certainly have no reason to be on it before 13. TikTok, I don't care what kind of dances they're doing. Before 13, there is no reason for a kid to pick up social media. It is Even the social media companies who have every incentive to get your kids hooked will agree, right? They're not meant for kids under 13. And then 13 and up, you know, limit it. I mean, you got to limit it. You know, you really have to be like, okay, half an hour a day, max. And, you know, you can do that through parental controls. They don't own their phone. You do, you own their phone. And um, if parents are afraid to, like, say no and all the other kids are doing it. Well, would you let your kid eat, like, garbage food? Would you let your kid do dangerous things for their health and their body? No. Like, social media is dangerous for a young mind. And so keep them off of it. And instead, really prioritize face-to-face interactions because that's how human beings evolved, you know. There's a lot of pheromones exchanged and, you know, nonverbal communication and, you know, touch and all those things they're practicing. And they're not going to have healthy adult relationships if they don't practice while they're under your roof and therefore you can help them. Yeah, I feel like so many parents really struggle with that very simple premise of you own the phone. Like you are responsible for how this is getting regulated for your kid. And I think, you know, obviously a lot of adults struggle to regulate their own relationship with Facebook, with social media, with their own phone. So the responsibility and weight of monitoring that or like helping their child be healthy in that, um, I think can feel really overwhelming. No, I think it is overwhelming. Yeah. And I, I have to say like, I, you know, I struggle too. We all struggle with our phone use and looking at our screen time going, ooh. But I definitely think, you know, it's a practice we all have to put into place, parents and kids, and limit what we do and limit our screen time and, you know, prioritize face-to-face interaction because that's how we're hardwired. And it's really, you know, if you looked, look at the studies of who, you know, which people live above 100 in the green zones, I'm sorry, in the blue zones and how they live so long, it's not their diet. It's not the lack of cigarette smoking, all this stuff. That actually is secondary. The number one reason that people are living happy and healthy lives in these blue zones is because of positive and healthy face-to-face social interactions. So related to the phone conversation is the conversation about pornography. 
how well, like what are the what are the great sort of t- tactics and tools that you have to help kids or to help parents talk to their kids about pornography? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. The reality is is that pornography is not going anywhere. You're not going to stop your kids from seeing it because it's just not you're not. I mean, before the age of twelve, you should do what you can to prevent them from seeing pornography because they do not have an understanding of it and can, it can be very scary and, and very, you know, so I think, you know, obviously parental controls, you know, you set everything on their phone, you make sure that you're always picking up their phone and checking it and making sure they don't have anything on it. They shouldn't be looking at. And that's not, you know, that's something you can do before the age of 12, they may find it. And if they find pornography, you should say, Hey, if you see images of people having sex at this point, you know, it's, pretty young they should know what like sex is and you should explain to them you know by the age of five or six what sex is so you could you should be able to say hey if you see naked photos of people having sex or touching each other you know in a in a way you know in a sexual way on their privates like come to me and tell me because sometimes they might see it at someone else's house or another kid you need to tell me i need to know about it we need to talk about it right but then, you know, when it comes to pornography of over the age of 12, they're going to seek it out. And that's, you know, boys certainly like 70% will start seeking it out at age 12. And that's okay because that's very normal. But you need to just tell them some things about it, right? And that most pornography is acting. Maybe some healthy adults have sex in these ways, but most probably do not. The camera angles, lighting, and the flow of sexual activity are part of a production process. And porn falsely portrays activities that could be painful as they are pleasurable. So do not think, you know, that this is what you should start doing. Like this is not your baseline, right? And that orgasms and ejaculations can be faked. So, you know, just think about that because you don't want this to translate to their first sexual experiences where they start spanking a 15-year-old girl, you know. Thinking that that's that's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, I saw that. Girls like that, you know. And that most bodies in pornography do not look like the bodies of porn actors. They're picked for certain characteristics, you know, that you can't expect your penis to be that big or, or, uh, you know, the breasts are often fake. And that if pornography is upsetting, don't continue to watch it because there's just a lot of things there that they just don't jive with what you like and what you need. And you don't need to watch the violin or the, you know, gangbangs or the things that are just really, you know, not, not, they're disturbing to you. Don't watch it. And also just tell them about consent. Like porn actors are, they get consent off stage. They're not actually walking into a hotel room and like, you know, meeting someone for the first time and dropping their panties. Like this is actually like all rehearsed and consent's already been given off stage. So those things just don't really happen in real life and certainly would violate every consent law, you know, every consent rule that we've talked about, you know, because you're not seeing them get verbal consent. So you have to talk about that. And then, you know, depending on what kind of parent you are, like there are less X art, for example, or a lot of Erica Lust stuff she does is actually like meant for more for like more of teenager consumption because it's a little teenage friend, more teenage friendly. Um, and literotica, which is like um, literature that's, you know, very erotic, is very good for teenage girls. They, they tend to like that more than they want to see like such overt violent pornography. So you could sort of steer your kid in a direction of pornography that might and that's okay to do that and say like this this kind of pornography 
if you really like pornography, if you want to spend your money, we can get a subscription to a nice, porno- you know, not nice, but like a less, you know, disturbing, violent pornography site. Yeah. Something that has, that's more ethical, that might have some, some bumpers in place that might feel more comfortable, safer to you. Yeah. More interesting even. Yeah. That the sort of question about developmentally appropriate pornography is a tricky one. Like it's one that I think a lot of parents are like sort of sitting with, like what's the teen friendly pornography, but it's, it's such a, I think sort of a shame riddled controversial question to ask because like, again, it does, it does acknowledge and affirm. We, we had all the access to our parents, you know, playboys and that was so PG compared to what we see now. And, you know, I would have no problem saying to my boy, Hey, I'll, Hey, earn, you know, mow the lawn, you know, earn a hundred dollars. I know you're watching pornography anyway, and we'll get you in a, a subscription to Axar, which is like, you know, pretty, you know, pretty non, you know, very kind of great pornography and the actors are all paid and it's all ethical, you know, rather than some horrific stuff that you'll find on, on, um, you porn. And do you, um, have recommendations for even giving kids guidelines about like how much porn consumption is healthy, how much masturbation in a day. Cause I think some of those things are on the minds of, of kids. Like I'm raising teenage sons. So I think that's a question that they're always like, is this okay? This is a lot or it's not enough. Or, you know, the, the parameters of like what, what's, you know, quote unquote normal. Yeah. I mean, I think there, the answer to that is there is no real normal, like some, some teenagers have more sexual desire than others and girls and boys sometimes there's huge differences and even in girls like there's huge differences between one girl and another so it would be hard to get like set a number on anything but i would just look about like does the obsession with pornography or the you know masturbation or those things is that interfering with them their ability to like function like have friends or play sports or do well in school and if it is then you you're really looking at someone who maybe needs to go to therapy to look at like what's really you know what is this about what does this represent for them but if they're still able to like hide it and do it when it's appropriate and not miss dinner or not miss their life and have friends and all that, then I would say it's, it's all normal. It's tucked into the larger narrative of their life in a way that yes is, makes sense. I like that tucked into the larger narrative of their life. That's great. Well, let's see. I've kind of come to the end of my questions, but are there other, other things that are common in your conversations with parents and with young people about how to engage in sexuality without shame? You know, other things that that seem important for you to say or mention here? I think that using like just teaching, I mean, this is, this is more than just sexuality. This is just great parenting, like teaching your kids to assertively communicate to, you know, with your parent, with their parents and with everyone healthy to have healthy relationships. Um, so things like using I statements, like I think I feel I want statements in their communication and self-care statements around like non-threatening consequences if somebody doesn't comply with what they're looking for that's a great it's dialectical behavioral therapy um and you can look more at that um there's a great thing called self-help tunes on um youtube where it goes through like a sort of communication for teens i think that that's amazing because it helps in their sexual life and in every aspect of their life and another thing is something that's in the end of my book, 
which is like owning your sexual story. So this is for me, like as a parent, kind of understanding, you know, how you were raised and how you developed your sexual machine. And then, you know, by looking at the expression of affection and sexuality in your family and, you know, what your family elders told you about sex and your early memories of sexual feelings and sexual play and your feelings about puberty and positive sexual experiences and negative sexual experiences and, you know, unwanted pregnancies or anything else you dealt with as a kid and sort of sifting down all that messages and then looking at it again from the narrative of, of all this stuff, what was, what did I learn and what do I really want to pass down? And you don't want to pass down trauma. So if there is sexual trauma, which is pretty hor- you know, horrible, what is it? What are the pearls from the trauma? Like, what did you learn from it that was actually helpful in life? And how do you just pass down that piece? Right. So, you know, rather being like, oh, you know, I was raped as a teenager. I don't want to see that happening. Like saying that to a teenage girl is like, could be really traumatic. Right. But you instead, like, what is it you're really trying to say? What you're really trying to say is, I really want you to keep yourself safe. And I don't want you to be sexually traumatized, like the way that I was as a, as a teenager. So instead of let's talk about the ways you can keep yourself safe. And these are the ways, right? You know, learn how to really express your boundaries. Don't go home with anyone you really don't know. Don't leave your friends when you're drinking. Like the no, you know, don't no friends left behind policy on drugs and alcohol. That's what I tell my teenagers. No friends left behind. If your friends are drinking, everyone goes together and they leave together. No one is allowed to leave in an unsafe way if they've been, they're intoxicated. So it's like all of these kind of behaviors that will keep you safe and your friends safe. That's what you really want your kids to know. You don't really need them to know about your sexual trauma. So it's kind of like looking at those things. Well, beautiful. I really appreciate your time and these like just really deep and practical uh, strategies that parents can offer their kiddos. For folks who want to learn more about your work or maybe go a little deeper in some of these topics, what's the best way for them to, to follow you? Yeah. My Instagram is shameless psychiatrist and my website is shamelesspsychiatrist.com. And my book is No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence, and Healthy Relationships. You can get it on Amazon. And uh, I would absolutely love, you know, any interactions from parents on my Instagram. I usually will answer questions if they're not, you know, they're appropriate ones. And that's how you can find me. Well, beautiful. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.